0: Hey, y'all. Welcome to Foamcast. We are Jeremy Faust and Lauren Westerfer.
1: Hey, you know what the free, open-access medical education world loves? Tranexamic acid. Massive hemorrhage? Give TXA within three hours. Epistaxis that's difficult to control? Try some topical TXA. Why? Because it's inexpensive, it has a low side effect or risk profile, and, hey, it often works.
0: Yes, and now another study on Tranexamic Acid, TXA, on bleedy patients, the postpartum hemorrhage patient, the WOMAN trial, W O M A N, a nice clever acronym, and a study with excellent foam reviews by Casey Parker down under at Broom Docs, Ryan Radecki at EM Lit of Note, and the folks over at the bottom line who all have excellent digestible study synopses.
1: In this study, it sought to determine whether TXA could reduce mortality from postpartum hemorrhage.
0: The underlying situation is this, every year 200 million women become pregnant worldwide. Coincidentally, many of them are currently in my emergency department. Pregnancy can be dangerous. In fact, day one of medical school, none other than Dr. Ruben Strayer of EM Updates told a class of us that, just remember one thing from this lecture, from the perspective of emergency medicine physician, pregnancy is a disease and delivery is the cure.
1: Which is funny, but untrue, because as we know, delivery is quite dangerous. And from previous episodes of this very show, we know that the postpartum period can also be troublesome, both in terms of things like venous thromboembolism risk and even eclampsia.
0: There are three main killers of pregnant women, sepsis, pulmonary embolism, and postpartum hemorrhage. As Casey Parker on Broom Docs with respect to this says, there's risk that the patient's face include bleeding, but also clotting. And as he says, tis a tightrope of thrombin our patient's walk.
1: Right. Is the patient going to bleed too much? Are they going to clot too much? Now, talking about this, it just makes me think, who would ever on this earth want to be pregnant? Who would do that? (laughs) Not Foamcast, that's for sure. But in this case, we are focusing in on what to do about postpartum hemorrhage, because this is legitimately a potential killer. Enter the Woman Trial. This was a randomized control trial of twenty thousand sixty women who were all over sixteen years old with postpartum hemorrhage after delivery, almost three quarters of which were vaginal, and then a quarter of the deliveries were C-section.
0: The most common reason in this cohort for postpartum hemorrhage: uterine atony.
1: Free pearl, also the most common cause of postpartum hemorrhage in general.
0: The participants were randomized to receive one gram of TXA over ten minutes or placebo. It was all double blinded, by the way. Both were given over 10 minutes.
1: And the primary outcome that the author specified, it was a composite endpoint, which means it was basically more than one thing. And that included death from any cause or hysterectomy within 42 days of randomization.
0: So for the composite outcome, 5.3% experienced it in the TXA group versus 5.5% in the placebo group.
1: Uh, that sounds like no difference. You're correct. So it's a negative trial.
0: (sighs) Technically, yes. The authors parsed through the data to look at deaths due to bleeding and found a slight reduction in deaths from hemorrhage, which are exactly the deaths you would expect might be mitigated by TXA. Of course, that means deaths from other causes had to maybe be increased to balance it out. If you if you look at all the deaths, i.e., not their composite outcome, there were a few fewer deaths in the TXA group, 2.3% in the TXA group versus 2.6 in the placebo group. But that finding just didn't reach statistical significance, and we'll come back to that in just a bit.
1: Back to death due to bleeding. This was sort of a secondary outcome that they had, and the adjusted risk ratio there was 0.78, which looks a bit predictive, and the 95% confidence interval was 0. 62 to 0.98 with a p-value of 0.03. So statistically significant, yes, but that upper bounds of the confidence interval just about touches one, which isn't so good, which means there's no difference. And digging through the results a little bit more, they found that those that were treated at under three hours had 1.2% mortality compared with 1.7% if treated greater than three hours.
0: Right. So you start to see maybe a bigger effect if there's early treatment. And that three-hour ceiling for TXA that might ring a bell. And it's because it kind of sounds similar to the data from the CRASH-2 trial, which was an earlier study on TXA in trauma patients, which was hotly debated in the foam world, I should say. And I would just say it basically gives us data that early treatment of bleeding trauma patients with TXA is good and delayed treatment three hours or more after the injury was bad. But back to the woman trial. This is, again, as you say, a big study, more than 20,000 women, essentially from developing nations who were having postpartum hemorrhage, which um, is actually more common than you see in the United States.
1: Yeah, and that sample size was enormous, but it was also increased after the study began because they realized that by the time that providers were reaching for the toolkit and having a patient randomized because, you know, they're bleeding out, they were just performing the hysterectomy. And since this was part of that composite outcome, death and hysterectomy they were sort of like well shucks we can't change hysterectomy so we'll have to increase the sample size in order to detect a mortality difference.
0: You may be looking at all these results and thinking oh man looks like TXA really doesn't do much and it may not.
1: Yeah here we're talking about a teeny tiny little difference, less than half a percentage point in a secondary outcome in a massive sample size, huge study, big undertaking. But the argument here is that death is kind of a big deal and death during childbirth is so much more tragic
0: it's the worst. So, okay, let's just spend another moment discussing whether or not this is a negative trial. The prevailing argument in the foam world is that, okay, it's a huge trial that shows at least the TXA is safe, possibly a small signal of benefit, maybe not, but appears safe, and that's good. But I think it's important to acknowledge that our standard for whether we're calling a study's intervention successful or not actually kind of hinges on not just the numbers, but the intervention itself. And it seems counterintuitive, but it's an important thing about reading papers. If I had a a treatment that costs a billion dollars, for one use. And it had a number needed to treat of 10,000 patients to say decrease hospital length of stay by a day. I would call that a negative trial. But if the if the treatment costs $10 has a number needed to treat again of 10,000, but it decreases mortality by 1, suddenly we're more interested. And that's what we've got here. Something that's cheap, might make a small difference on a majorly important outcome. And it's not an industry funded study as well. So we kind of look on it a little more favorably. And so it kind of bends in favor of TXA. And I'm also going to just mention that that secondary outcome, any cause of death, is probably that one I'm most interested in anyway.
1: Right. Because while this was a huge study with more than 20,000 patients, the number of deaths Was only 483, which I think we could say is a good thing, right? We don't want these women dying. In the TXA group, it did have fewer deaths, but the almighty p value was 0.16, so it failed to reach statistical significance. So while it's perhaps a little disingenuous to say that this study was underpowered for mortality, it actually may have been. What we don't know and what we kind of need to know is how. TXA does in certain groups. Maybe it's great for patients with moderate hemorrhage but not severe, or vice versa. Perhaps it's useless for mild to moderate, but has a huge benefit in severe patients. And we did not get that info in this study.
0: Okay, so moving on to some core content vaginal bleeding, pregnant, think must roll out a topic. But What happens when the pregnancy test is negative?
1: On Foamcast, we have talked about non-ectopic vaginal bleeding, episode 60, and we have also talked about ectopic pregnancies. So it is logically time for non-pregnant vaginal bleeding. That too is a thing.
0: So let's get into some Rosen alley on dysfunctional uterine bleeding.
1: First, though, we got to get some terminology squared away. The rap vocabulary helps us not only keep track of what we know, but allows us to communicate a little bit better with our consultants from other services. In this case, that would be obstetrics and gynecology. So dysfunctional uterine bleeding is, per Rosen's, ovulatory or anovulatory bleeding diagnosed after the exclusion of pregnancies, medications, iatrogenic causes, genital tract pathology, and systemic disease. But that definition kind of makes it tough to distinguish between normal bleeding, i.e. menstrual cycle, and abnormal bleeding. So actually the Merck manual has a little bit better definition, which is dysfunctional uterine bleeding is abnormal uterine bleeding that... After examination and ultrasonography cannot be attributed to the usual causes, things like structural gynecologic abnormalities, cancer, inflammation, systemic disorders, pregnancy, complications of pregnancy, including miscarriage, use of oral contraceptives, or drugs. That also implies that it is not related to normal menstruation.
0: All right, so some other terms we need to know, starting with amenorrhea, that's 6 months without vaginal bleeding in a woman who is supposed to be having cyclic bleeding, so a patient who is non-menopausal. And in a woman who is indeed menopausal, it then becomes abnormal for that patient to have vaginal bleeding. So that's got a name too, postmenopausal bleeding.
1: And then there's Bleeding, but just at unexpected times, which means not during the menstrual cycle. Intermenstrual bleeding is just what it sounds like. That would be irregular bleeding at a time during the cycle that is not expected. So, like I had a period a week ago and now I'm bleeding and that's not normal for me. That is intermenstrual bleeding. Within that category, you've got mid cycle spotting. Again, kind of what it sounds like. This is when there's just very mild bleeding in the middle of a cycle. And usually it's um, a result of some declining estrogen levels around the time of ovulation.
0: Mid cycle spotting is pretty- probably the reason why some patients don't realize they're pregnant and they think they're just having a period, but actually it's first trimester bleeding. What I mean is because it's not so unusual to have a small amount in bleeding between cycles. Some women may think, oh, I'm just having an early period, a late period. Some women have a longer or shorter cycle and some variants within their own. It just adds to the confusion. And this is actually why I often think that when we ask the patient the question, hey, when was your last menstruation? It can be kind of a useless question because they often don't know. And either way, you're going to get a pregnancy test. And by the way, if that patient is pregnant and bleeding, you know you're going to get a serum quant HCG anyway because you're ruling out ectopic first miscarriage and you'll need to trend the HCG over 48 hours. Sorry for the space repetition on that, but I had to.
1: (laughs) One more term to note, menorrhagia. You probably just think menorrhagia equals heavy bleeding, and you'd be absolutely right, that is true, but it's defined as bleeding at regular intervals with either heavy flow or long duration.
0: Menorrhagia, heavy flow or long duration, And okay, what defines heavy flow or long duration?
1: Heavy flow is defined as greater than 80 milliliters, which is ridiculous. No woman measures her menstrual flow. That is impossible. Um, The long duration is seven or more days, so then you have menorrhagia.
0: By the way, can I just do an aside? The word hemorrhage, menorrhagia, hemorrhoid, spelling is really an issue. Really? Really, we're going here? Yes, we are, and here's the deal. There are no repeat letters in any of these words except the letter R hemorrhage, menorrhagia, hemorrhoid. I remember that by knowing that all of these words are associated with the word blood. So I think that those two R's in the middle, the RR, stands for really red.
1: Okay, fair. Fair but how do you remember where the H comes?
0: Okay, I just remember that in women with first trimester bleeding we're supposed to get a row antigen test, so that's RH testing, so then I remember that after the two R's comes the H.
1: Foamcast, helping you pass your spelling bee? All right, anyways, back into things we care about. We are back to menorrhagia, which is greater than 80 mLs of bleeding or longer than seven days. Here's the thing, patients
0: don't come in with knowledge such as, hey doc, I have bled 85 mLs this week, as, as you as you mentioned. Instead, they tell you maybe how many, vaginal bleeding pads they have used i had no idea by the way so i had to look up what the correlates supposedly are. So I Googled this. Supposedly it's super easy. Each normal pad can take up to five milliliters of blood. And a maxi pad can absorb ten milliliters. If that were true, then you could know it's menorrhagia if the patient said, I use three maxi pads per day, that's thirty milliliters per day for three days, or I used five normal pads per day for four days, right? So you could do the math based on that.
1: Right. And then you consulted Google and then you consulted a woman, and were you right? No. <laughs> yeah, so that, that sounds easy, but then asking about the number of pads or tampons, it's part of the history, so do it, but this is really so unreliable, you can't adequately quantify it and be like, okay, so four pads, that's blank however many mls. Patients change these at all different types of intervals, and it really just depends on their preference and their comfort. Sometimes people will change their tampon every time they every time they go pee. Some will change them at specified intervals, some when they appear full or just feel like they want to, change it. The biggest thing that you should probably ask your patients is, is this bleeding interfering with your life? Is it more than normal? That's pretty much all you need to know coupled with the exam to access for anemia in terms of how severe is this bleeding.
0: If that's too complicated, there's also the other criterion, maybe the seven days of bleeding that counts as menorrhagia too. Okay. So now we know what menorrhagia is and also how to spell
1: it. <laughs> First, a general approach to the patient with vaginal bleeding. Most of these are stable, but the first thing to assess is, of course, is the patient stable? And most of them will be, or are they unstable? If they're unstable, then you know what to do. You get your labs, tap and screen, excellent access bilaterally, and call OBGYN for potential source control, begin to hang blood. Exactly those things.
0: If they're stable, then you can stop and start to figure out the possible causes of this dysfunctional uterine bleeding, and then therefore maybe what to do about
1: it. Usually in the emergency setting, we're more concerned not about diagnosing an underlying medical problem, but in treating the acute emergency that has ensued. But it is interesting to note that more than 10% of women with just heavy menstrual bleeding will have an underlying medical problem that's causing this to occur. Most common would be von Willebrand's disease. So it's not about thought to consider recommending outpatient workup for a patient who has really never gotten a real understanding as to why they have menorrhagia, particularly if they have other things like easy bruising or bleeding with dental procedures.
0: Right. Could be a bleeding disorder, a coagulopathy. Maybe it's a liver problem. There could be an endocrine cause. Think about thyroid or Cushing or even hypothalamus-related access issues.
1: And of course, it can be an anatomical cause. And my favorite, 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 medications can do it. Not just the anticoagulants, but also things like antipsychotics, steroids, thyroid hormones, and others. Oh, and ironically, the most common medication that does this or contraceptive pills.
0: So you might be able to correlate new dysfunctional uterine bleeding to a new medication. That'd be a hero moment for you. Or maybe you might get an inkling as to an underlying medical cause for the bleeding by way of some standard blood testing that you did if you happen to have ordered coagulation studies or LFTs. But again, a lot of this will be outpatient workup
1: the patient has never had irregular or heavy bleeding before and they show up to the emergency department with that complaint, the workup is basically two-pronged. There's the emergency medicine workup, i.e. are they stable or not? Are they so anemic that they need a transfusion? Are they actively bleeding from somewhere to such an extent that they need an emergent procedure of some kind, you know, like the life and organ saving stuff that we do every single day.
0: And the second prong is the stable patient. And this is a combination of what we've already touched upon and maybe imaging. That is, you might get some lab tests if you think there's a legitimate reason to believe the patient may have some kind of coagulopathy or a liver problem or even thyroid disease
1: and these are going to be low yield most of the time the next question is do they need imaging and the answer is maybe ultrasound can be useful in diagnosing the cause in up to say 60 percent of patients so pelvic ultrasound contributes to that underlying diagnosis the most common cause being uterine fibroids aka leomyomas fibromas uterine myoma, or other cause that is diagnosed here, especially in women greater than 45, is endometrial cancer or hyperplasias. The leomyoma, fibromyalgia, uterine myoma, those are all sort of interchangeable terms for non-malignant tumors. Yes, they are non-malignant tumors of the connective tissue and smooth muscle of the uterus.
0: The thing is that even though the ultrasound in the ED might contributing to getting towards the underlying diagnosis, it rarely changes ED management.
1: Yep, OB-GYN follow-up. But most patients can probably get this ultrasound as an outpatient, You know, as long as they're going to follow up and you're like, I really don't think something bad is going to happen to them really soon.
0: And speaking of management,
1: Jeremy, we did it again. We forgot to examine the patient.
0: Oh, dang, right. Okay. Look for signs of anemia, pale conjunctiva, skin pallor, fatigue, presyncope, maybe even chest pain. And you will usually need to perform a pelvic exam to rule out brisk bleeding.
1: Yeah. And, you know, to make sure that this is actual vaginal bleeding, I think we've probably all encountered vaginal bleeding that is rectal bleeding or hematuria or vice versa, you know, rectal bleeding that is actually vaginal bleeding. So um, especially in the elderly patients, make sure that you figure out that it's actually coming from the vagina. Also, you're going to want to make sure that it's not an odd presentation of pelvic inflammatory disease, which can cause vaginal bleeding, a foreign body in there, which also may want to be removed, um, or torsion. Good enough? Yeah. Okay. Now we can do management.
0: Often what happens with a non-pregnant vaginal bleeder is we assess the patient. And if they're stable and they've got no clear dangerous trigger, they're not pregnant, maybe we get that CBC and maybe they are or are not anemic. And basically, they're mostly here for symptoms. So what do we do? We can treat that, right? So for pain, crampy pain being the most common complaint, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories and are the first line. And I know I'm hearing you saying, oh, what about making the bleeding worse? But it's really not a big deal here. Yes, in some patients, some specific patients, it's an issue. But it's likely to be way less of an issue than some patients and, heck, even some doctors believe.
1: And then to stop the bleeding, which is probably very annoying for your patients, We'd love to help that stop. And if the patient is less than 45 years old, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, ACOG, their clinical policy recommends combination oral contraceptives, but it's sort of like amped up doses. So this is going to be something like Norgestimate Ethanol Estradiol, three tablets a day for seven days. And the key is that you're going to want the 35 micrograms of estrogen, which here is the Ethanol Estradiol part of this combination. So these are things like, forgive me, I'm going to use brand names because it's just far easier than remembering how to spell those words, things like orthonovum and orthocycline. They both had the 35 micrograms of estrogen that you need.
0: And for goodness sake, look this up or talk to your OBGYN and see what they like to do in, in their house. There's some tapers. There are different ways to do this. In general, what you just talked about, three weeks worth of tablets uh, in a week. So it's really a higher dose. And you will have to be cautious in certain patients. Think about smokers or those with a history of thromboembolic disease, pulmonary emboli, etc. And maybe a patient with a history of breast cancer. Be careful giving patients like this hormones, depending on what kind of cancer they had. And basically with any patient who might have an estrogen-sensitive of some kind.
1: And then, of course, if the patient is really bleedy um, and they may need IV therapy, maybe you're also transfusing them and they're going to get admitted, you can give IV-conjugated equine estrogen. And Jeremy, just to bring this full circle, the ACOG clinical policy also recommends that you can try tranexamic acid. You can do 1.3 grams orally, three times a day for five days, or you can give some IV. But that is another use of tranexamic acid recommended by ACOG.
0: Alright, bottom line pearls, the woman trial assessed the efficacy and safety of tranexamic acid, TXA, for postpartum hemorrhage. It appears to have been associated with decreased death due to bleeding, and fewer laparotomies maybe, but the data were not slam dunk, and we can at least say that TXA appears to be safe, but for more, read the Lancet paper, check out Broom Docs, The Bottom Line, and EM Lit of Note.
1: Dysfunctional uterine bleeding is abnormal uterine bleeding that after examination and or ultrasonography, it's not attributed to some other cause, not a structural... um... Uh, gynecologic abnormality. It's not cancer, inflammation. It's not a systemic disorder like hypothyroidism. It's not pregnancy. It's not ectopic pregnancy, first and foremost. Um, And it's not a complication of pregnancy like miscarriage or due to some other drug, oral contraceptives or otherwise. So fibroids, if you diagnose them, they do not count as dysfunctional uterine bleeding.
0: Menorrhagia is abnormal vaginal bleeding, and there's either quantity or, of days or, or milliliters, so seven days or more bleeding, or supposedly 80 milliliters of bleeding, but that's tough to quantify, so we can rely really on the presence of systemic symptoms for the patient or any lifestyle disruption as well to diagnose menorrhagia.
1: Underlying causes for abnormal vaginal bleeding, again, like we talked about, they can be structural, they can be also coagulopathies, medical issues, especially endocrine-related And there are the iatrogenic ones, things, medications like antipsychotics, steroids, oral contraceptives, many others.
0: NSAIDs are fine to treat the pain. And for women under age 45, ACOG recommends oral contraceptions, but at high doses. So we're looking at nordestimate ethanol estradiol three times a day for seven days. That's high dose. Oh, and they should probably follow up with a gynecologist.
1: Ross, review question for you, Jeremy. All right. (laughs) A 32-year-old woman presents with vaginal bleeding for two weeks. She states she has about one pad of bleeding every two to three hours. Vital signs are stable and physical exam only reveals blood from the cervical os. Patient's hemoglobin is 12 grams per deciliter. Her pregnancy test is negative. What treatment is indicated for this patient? Admission for dilation and curatage. Combination oral contraceptives. Hysterectomy. It doesn't say whether it's performed by an emergency physician or otherwise. And intravenous estrogen therapy.
0: Well, this is a stable patient, basically, who does not need to be transfused or or basically having any procedure. This is someone who just needs to feel better and have less bleeding and follow up. So they're going to get combination oral contraception and, again, in those high doses. All right. That wraps it up for this episode. I assume I was right. Okay. That wraps it up for this episode of Foamcast. (laughs) For more, check out our blog, foamcast.org.
1: And you can also find us on Twitter at Foam podcast. For
0: more Rosh review questions, check us out online. And we're going to be at SMAC in Berlin. Very excited about that. Thanks to Rosh.
1: And we appreciate y'all listening and remembering not to foam it alone. Right. Is a patient going to bleed too much? Are they going to clot too much? Who would ever want to be pregnant? Sorry, the irony
0: here. <laughs> I, I wrote it for you. Foamcast <laughs> is free, open access medical education.
1: The opinions expressed are ours alone and no one else's.